Isaiah chapter 6, beginning to start at the first verse. Isaiah speaks. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, He touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. And thank you, Dan, for your kind welcome. It's been lovely being here. And uh, it's a great treat for Annette and me to join you in your worship this morning. Uh, I want to speak for a few minutes on that passage, the wonderful passage about mission, preparation for mission, how we approach our our whole attitude to mission, what we think about it, and uh, as we sit, may we pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for that sense that we have that you're here. We can't see you, but we know that you are here. And we ask that each one of us this morning may hear your voice and sense your presence and go out on fire with a new love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the context of Isaiah 6, as some of you may know, seems to be that Isaiah was going through rather a difficult time. He was getting tired. He was preaching. He wasn't getting much response. And he felt generally spiritually worn out. 
and it's a familiar feeling to many, many people in church life. Some of you have been around as long as I have. You've seen mission weeks come and mission weeks go. And in some churches, they can sense the vicar getting excited about mission, and they go off on holiday for a fortnight and then come back when they hope it'll all be over. There's a sort of what Frank Lake used to call a hardening of the arteries. We know what we ought to do, but we don't enjoy it, and we don't expect it to make any difference. And uh, we know exactly when it was. It's historically linked to King Uzziah, who was a wonderful king, the Bible tells us. He was a godly man and reigned with great power for something over 50 years. And uh, rather sadly, we would think uh, he took upon himself to burn incense in the temple and came out of the temple as a leper and died in hospital with leprosy in the year 740. And Isaiah dates his ministry to before that and after that because something happened in 740 that revolutionized his whole life and his whole approach to ministry. And I think it's most helpful, really, to look at this only six or seven verses, eight verses, I think, seven, uh, under three sort of headings, really. Number one is what happened to, uh, to Isaiah. He saw the Lord. Something happens when we see the Lord. And that, of course, is a work of the Spirit. We can go through life for many years without seeing anything. I'm not talking necessarily about physical sight, or there it was for Isaiah. It's the perception, the understanding, the sense in which you wake up one morning and you think, I see. I get it. It's all about God. It's all about God's love for me. I fit in with him. And as I saw, John, St. John, the evangelist, St. John tells us that it was Jesus that he saw. We talk about before Christ and after Christ. We mean the time of Christ's earthly ministry. But there never was a time, of course, when Jesus didn't exist. He wasn't called Jesus. And Isaiah saw him seated on a throne. And the second category, of course, was what Isaiah saw Jesus surrounded by, the community in the temple. And in New Testament terms, the temple is now the church, the body of Christ. Not the church building, the people. The people of Christ. And they were represented in Isaiah's vision by the seraphim. And each of them, he noted, had six wings. They were the community that surrounded Jesus at that time. They were the supporters, the community that God had brought into existence to see him and to share in the life of Jesus and the Trinity. 
They had two wings, we're told, with which they covered their faces. A sort of picture in biblical terms of meditation and reverence. Two wings covered their feet, humility. And two they were flying with, service. Darting here and there, wherever Jesus indicated some fresh need, some fresh opportunity for service, off they went to do whatever God called them to do. And as I saw the way they related to one another, they were calling to one another. And the subject of their call was all about God and how the whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. And it's a lovely picture of them, the ideal Christian community. The subject of their conversation, the glory of God, darting around, doing whatever they're called to do. And at the sound of their voices, we're told, the whole building shook. Uh, You may remember the same thing happened in Acts 4. They prayed for boldness. They prayed for the Spirit to come and fill them. The whole building shook. And they were off out on fire with a new zeal and energy and love uh, for God. It's the activity of the Spirit. St. John, who, as many of you will know, is, of all the four gospel writers, he's the one who emphasizes at every opportunity the activity and the work of the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus comes with a theological discussion. Nicodemus, Jesus says, unless you're born from above, born from the Holy Spirit, born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. You'll never enter the kingdom of God. The woman at the well, she thinks Jesus is talking about water from the well. And he says, if only, if only, if only you knew. I'm not talking about that. If you knew who it was, you would ask me for living water, the Spirit, of course. In John chapter 7, you may remember, John feels it necessary to explain to us when Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. St. John feels it necessary to remind us that, of course, Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit. Who had not yet been given. Because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And by glorification, of course, St. John means the cross and the resurrection. And on that Sunday night... The day Jesus rose from the dead, he couldn't wait. He'd been glorified. He couldn't wait. He breathed on his disciples. Receive Holy Spirit, he said. Receive him. And having been, I don't blame them, but we observe, having been frightened, understandably, nervous, understandably, disillusioned, understandably, They received the Holy Spirit and went out as bold as brass, telling everybody, you killed him. God raised him. What are the implications of that? The good news to go out over all the world. And the interesting thing is, in this week of mission, you know, 
the world is in a pretty rough state. And the only people that have the answer to the issues that face the world today, the only people are the Christians, the church. We have the answer. And the issue for us is how we meet, match these two together. Those that are desperate for the answer and we who are longing for them to hear the answer. That's the theme of mission, isn't it? And it's in that context, Isaiah saw Jesus, he saw the community. I often think, I was telling him at the last service, you know, the, um, the um, bishop of Antioch in the year 100 AD, St. Ignatius, he was martyred in about 100 AD in Rome just for being a Christian. But he used to have this wonderful picture of the Christian community as a choir. You will know all about this picture, I'm sure. He said, we can only glorify God adequately if we are all playing our part in the symphony of praise. In the choir, I hope, will forgive me if I use them in this illustration. But his point is that everyone has a gift. You never see a member of the choir sitting sulking with their arms folded thinking, I don't like this song. I told her if she has this song, I'm not going to sing it. They don't do that. Do they? Everyone has a gift. No one is dispensable, he says. And if, if, if one buries their talent and separates themselves from the choir, then the music is impaired. Ignatius goes on specifically to say that the bishop and the presbyters, as part of this music, ought to fit together like a harp and its strings. And in one of his letters, he goes on to say, the church, the community, was divinely established as a visible society. The salvation of souls is its end. And in that unity, in that unanimity of spirit and the demonstration of God's love one to another that the seraphim demonstrated, that you, the church, demonstrate, that you, the choir, demonstrate, that visible aspect of God's love becomes something hugely attractive and something which people outside want to join. So God touches Isaiah and shows him Jesus. God shows him the community that Jesus died to bring into existence. Of course, as the writer to the Hebrews explains to us, the cross is an eternal sacrifice. It worked retrospectively and ahead, throughout, before and after. And in anticipation of that, God sees Isaiah's response, which is a response of all of us. Lord, I, I, I can't cope with all this holiness. I'm not worthy. I, if you knew me, and God says, I do know you, I know your funny little ways. Actually, some of them are not funny. 
they're sinful. I know all of that. And the angel goes and takes the hot coal and touches Isaiah's lips and says, all that is behind you now. That is in the past. I have come that you might be redeemed, be forgiven, be restored. St. Paul develops that argument, as you'll know, in Romans chapter 6. He says, do you not know that when you were baptized, you died to sin? You've been set free from sin. Stop it! Because you can. And you rise redeemed. A little bit more wise, a little bit more experienced, a little bit more conscious of the weaknesses that you have, but forgiven. And Isaiah's first response to this atonement of forgiveness and is to say, Lord, Lord, this is amazing. And as he hears God's voice whispering to him, he overhears, who shall we send? Who will go for us? Everything within him says, Lord, I'd like to do that. What can I do for you? And in Mission Week, is a particular time for us to allow God to refresh our vision of Jesus. The difference between the membership of Christ's church through forgiveness and non-membership of Christ's church through our sins, tying us down and holding us back and robbing us of joy and peace and love is enormous. The church isn't just a cause that some people support and some people don't. People don't, they're like causes on the whole. The church is the community of God with a message, which is that one day we shall all stand before God. It's not a threat, it's a promise. And as we have been forgiven, forgiven and redeemed, everything within us begins to say, Lord, what can I do? And when God whispers to us, we shout back, Father, not the traditional Anglican response, if I may say so, I'm a loyal Anglican, I love the Anglican church, the traditional response is, Lord, here am I, send him. But that's not our response because we've seen the Lord and we start to say, Lord, here am I. Warts and all, send me. For Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today. Christ has no feet but our feet to lead men in his way. Christ has no lips but our lips to tell how he died. Christ has no love but our love to lead men to his side. We are the only gospel the careless world will read. We are the sinner's Bible. We are the scoffer's creed. We are the Lord's last message 
written in deed and word. But what if the type be crooked? And what if the print be blurred? What if our hands are busy with other work than his? What if our feet be going where sin's allurement is? What if our lips be speaking of things his lips would spurn? How can we hope to win men and hasten his return? Would you like to stand? As we close, I'm, I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure quite what your tradition is, so forgive me if I'm trespassing on precious, precious tradition. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to do what he did for Isaiah and to touch each one of us again with a fresh vision. For some of us, it's a fresh vision of why we first signed up, why we first committed ourselves to serve God for the rest of our lives. And something may have intervened. We've lost our way. And we want to start again. This would be the chance. Uh, and again, I, I often encourage people for this just to hold out your hands. You don't have to hold out your hands. It's not part of the liturgy. But as I often say, it's the opposite of this. This means, oh God, I dare you to touch me. This means, oh God, I want everything you can give me that I may be faithful in serving you for whatever years you lead me. And I'm expecting confidently that as we pray now, God will speak to you and whisper encouragement to you support and strength and forgiveness where necessary and a new start so that this could be the first day of the rest of your life with a new vision of Jesus and a new sense of what he's calling you to do big or small and an opportunity to do it father thank you for your promise the promise that Jesus relayed to us, that if we ask for your Holy Spirit, you will give him to us. We ask, come, Holy Spirit, fill us anew. Speak to us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. And I'm going to suggest that if God's spoken to you about something that he might want you to do, however big or however small, you might renew that promise, accept it, and renew it when we come to communion. And we relive, remember, put together again Christ's body. And we see again what he's done for us. And you may find yourself 
offering yourself again to God to do whatever he wants you to do to the glory of God. Amen.